something the podcast where I investigate something I'm curious about and then I share all the well most of the interesting bits with you whatever I can fit in I'm Melissa and I'm Everett today we I said we're gonna do history and yes. it's gonna be very recent history <laughs> well as I'm, long as it's not today it's not well, well was it previous from today yeah but there's some bits from earlier That's this history. year <laughs> That's okay um I just got a little enamored with uh, the concept of just Chernobyl in general. And I realized, I mean, everyone knows about Chernobyl, but I was like, what do I really know about it? Like, yes, a nuclear disaster happened to the end, you know? So I wanted to just figure out some more details. And that means you're going to learn about the thyroid gland and frogs and iodine and melanin and kind of how a nuclear reactor works just great you know if you've listened to this podcast before you do know how many tangents i tend to go down and if you haven't well you're in for a treat yes absolutely so um how about you teach us something okie dokie let's start with where is chernobyl Mm, yes so chernobyl's just a small town or was is still I guess so. In present-day Ukraine, about 90 kilometers north of Kiev, which is, as you know, the capital of Ukraine. That's right, it did Um, At the time of the accident, of course, Ukraine was part of the USSR. Correct. Um, Before the evacuation of Chernobyl, it had about 14,000 residents. Today, about 1,000 people live there. Oh, really? Yes. Um, But the Chernobyl power plant wasn't located in the city of Chernobyl. It was located in a town, now a ghost town, called Pripyat. Pripyat? I'm not great at this language. Okay. Um, which is 16 and a half kilometers northwest of Chernobyl. Okay. So they basically made this city to serve the power plant. That makes sense. So there was a nearby river called Pripyat. Um, they built this city for people to live in, that they worked at the power plant. You know, not like completely unusual thing to do. Yeah, makes sense. Um, it was officially proclaimed a city in 1979. It was founded in 1970. And, uh, then it, the population was about like a little over 49,000 by the time they had to evacuate it. So much larger than Chernobyl was. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, just for some more geographical context, the plant is about 20 kilometers south of the Belarusian border. And okay. 140 kilometers west of the border to the Russian Federation. Okay. If that helps you imagine in your brain where this is. Um, so they selected the site in 1972 and then began construction shortly after. The original plan had them building this power plant about 25 kilometers from Kiev. And then the Ukrainian Academy of Sciences and some other groups were kind of concerned that that would be too close to the city. And in my Probably head, I'm thinking call. like, oh my God, can you can you even imagine what would have happened had this happened 25 kilometers from Kiev? Um, but it didn't. So the Chernobyl nuclear power plant consisted of four what are called RBMK-1000 reactors. Um which were each capable of producing 1,000 megawatts of electricity. Okay. So that's where the 1,000 comes in. Yeah. I see. Um, so together, those four reactors produced about 10% of Ukraine's electricity. I'm going to tell you more about what an RBMK reactor is later, but for now, we'll just say it's a type of nuclear reactor developed, like invented and developed by the Soviets, only used by the Soviets. Okay. Um, it's cooled by water and moderated by graphite. Yeah. These are important things that will come up later. Um, so this was the third Soviet RBMK nuclear power plant. Uh, there was the Leningrad nuclear power plant and the Kursk nuclear power plant already. And this is the first one that they built in Ukraine. Okay. Um, the first reactor of the four was completed and they started using it in 1977. Uh, the second reactor they added in 1978. Number three opened in 1981. And then number four which is the one that melted down Infamous, here, yeah. um, was activated in 1983. So at the time of the accident, they were in the process of building two more 
reactors. So there was going to be number five and six. Um, So here's my first thing that I, well, I've learned some lots of things so far, but my first big revelation is, you know, the Chernobyl disaster, which happened in 1986, was not the first thing to go wrong at the power plant. Um, So to be blunt, things were kind of a mess from the get-go here. So first of all, RBMK reactors were a relatively old technology even at the time, far less safe than the modern pressurized water reactors, PWR reactors that Soviets were also building. Um, so they were building already, wait, wait, they were building multiple types. newer ones yeah. and older outdated ones at the same time. Yeah. Okay. I mean, money was a big reason. Sure. Yeah. So... The RBMK reactors at the time of the Chernobyl disaster produced about half of the Soviet Union's electricity from nuclear power, about 5% of the total generation capacity of electricity. Um, But second, there were some, and I'm going to say, ill-advised designs in place for this plant. For example, shortly after the disaster, the Soviet officials were like, we should change the enrichment of the fuel because we messed that up from the start. Um, so what that means is that they increased the proportion of fissionable uranium-235 in the fuel. So the announcement that they wrote said, by increasing the percentage of uranium-235 to 2.4% from the designed level of 2%, then they would reduce the tendency for power bursts to occur in the presence of steam bubbles, which is going to be the primary factor here. So some analysts said... This void effect, which is when steam bubbles cause power bursts, is well known to nuclear engineers. Was at the time. This is what people said at the time. This is well known. And the Soviet designers must have taken it into account when they set the original level of enrichment or should have taken it into account. So why was it designed this way? Well, we'll never, of course, know for sure. But higher enrichment makes the fuel more... Expensive? Yes. And, you know, thus the plants are less economical for them to run. So there is speculation that Soviet authorities knowingly sacrificed a measure of safety, attempting to hold down operating costs and sell their design to the big boys in Moscow. I see. Okay. I guess, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I I mean, let's be clear. I don't think anyone thought there is a good chance we'll melt down a nuclear power plant. They probably thought well, nothing would really go wrong, right? Um, but third, as stereotypical as this might sound of the old USSR, construction was done poorly from the start. Um, according to some now declassified data that was delivered to the KGB, there were many design deviations and violations in the construction and assembly of the reactors. So the report was delivered during the construction of reactor number two. It said that the deviations could become dangerous and cause accidents, but it doesn't seem like any actions were taken in response to this report. And then they continued to build three and four. Yeah, who knows how well they built those. Sure. So to start with, the structural pillars in the generator room were built with a deviation about 100 millimeters from the reference axis, from what they were supposed to be. Um, the wall panels were installed with a deviation of about 150 millimeters from where they were supposed to be. I know these seem like small changes, but when you're building nuclear reactors, things are designed a certain way for a reason. become important. Um, the horizontal connectors that ran between pillars were absent in many places. And because of all of these errors, the placement of the roof plate did not conform to the designer's speculations as well. Um, there were other... We're talking roof plate like on, that caps off the reactor, reactor and like yeah. seals it or something. Something like that. Okay. I don't know. KGB. This may have been declassified, but it's still hard to <laughs> get information on. Okay. Um, other flaws in the disaster or in the uh, reactors were that in some places the vertical waterproofing was damaged, which could have potentially led to groundwater seepage into the station and you know radioactive contamination of the water, groundwater. Um, and without proper foundation, the quality of the construction definitely deteriorated over time. Um, the foundation had issues because apparently the workers were allowed to stop and like take breaks while pouring the concrete, which Ooh. caused gaps and air bubbles in the foundation. Yeah. Um, so the report said, quote, cracks were made in the concrete when pouring, especially heavy concrete, which led to the formation of pits and stratification of the foundation. The approach routes to the Chernobyl automatic power station 
are in disastrous condition um, as well. Okay. So, I can't say exactly what an approach route is. But... I was assuming it meant in general, if emergency services needed to reach the plant. Understood. That... Like actual approach to the plant from the outside. I think that that's what it okay. means. But again, things were very, you know, it's like, it's a report to KGB. It was just like sentence after sentence with not much explanation between. Okay. Um, okay. Problem number four. This plant was just known to be unsafe. So lots of things contributed to it. Lack of training, lack of supervision, the unsafe design and construction. Um, but it led to really dangerous working conditions. So, for example, the first, this report to the KGB was written um, at the end of 1978. And the report said during the first three quarters of 1978, 170 employees had work-related injuries as a result of insufficient monitoring of the condition of the safety equipment. That resulted in the loss of 3,366 man days of work. Yeah. And as you can imagine, that means the other workers are overworked and overtired. Sure. And they're going to make more mistakes. I mean, assuming that they're not hiring more people on to fill those positions left devoid from you Well, know, considering that hours. they have their own little town to draw employees from, and it might take a while to get people moved out there and doing those things. You know what I or, mean? Or, you know, birthing, you know... You know, kids that can grow up and do this at a fast enough rate. Yeah, that's, that's going to take a little longer, yeah. I guess so. Um, but now I want to talk about nuclear reactors. Because okay. I will freely admit that I had no clue how a nuclear reactor actually generated power before this. Okay. And now I think I have, like, half a clue. So I'm Let's gonna, go with the half a clue. I'm going to do my best. So, focusing on the Soviets' RBMK reactors. Because not all nuclear reactors work in the same way. Yes, correct. So the RBMK stands for Reactor Bolshoi Machnosti Kalinivi. Oh, God. Oh. Anyways, I'm, sure I'm assuming it's super people... accurate pronunciation. Totally. I was assuming it's people that invented the reactor. That's okay. all the information I can find. Um, it ran on uranium, as I said before. The uranium is contained in strong enclosed pipes called pressure tubes. Each reactor contains 1,600 pressure tubes. The core of the reactor is a large container about the size of a small house. And it contains the moderator material, which yeah. in this case is blocks of graphite. Right. So around 1,600 holes, you know, were pierced through the graphite where the pressure tubes and control wads mm -hmm. could fit into it. Yeah. So how it works. First in the core, a reaction occurs, which allows the uranium fuel to become hot. Yes. And at this point, I'm going to ask Everett to step in and do a very brief explanation about what that reaction looks like. Okay. So these kinds of reactors are nuclear fission, meaning that we're taking very large atoms, uh, heavy atoms as we often call them, and breaking them down into two smaller or multiple smaller, more stable elements, atoms. As opposed to like what happens in the sun, where we do nuclear fusion of like hydrogen into helium. Uh, which is putting two atoms together to make a new bigger atom. So in this case, we're taking big atoms and we're splitting them apart. And the way this works is uh, it kind of happens as a chain. We put some energy in. That energy overcomes uh, what I would like a barrier to a reaction starting. And then what happens is the large heavy element breaks into its two smaller uh, atoms. And the potential energy of the two smaller atoms is less than the potential energy of the one bigger one. So the difference in energy levels is where we get the energy from the nuclear reaction. Like it lets off more energy. What we're saying is that uranium-235 is kind of inherently unstable and wants to break apart pretty easily. From an energetic perspective, yes. Releasing energy when it does so. Yes. In I, the form of heat. Yeah. Uh, energy In release is almost yes. always heat. Right. So it heats up. The uranium fuel starts to get hot. Since these RBMK reactors are water-cooled, water is then pumped through the core to remove heat from the fuel. Correct. Passes by, the water gets hot, it takes the heat away. And I'm assuming that the water then is then used to turn turbines 
Well, which is where the energy actually comes from. The water boils. Yes. Turns into steam. The steam travels up into steam separators. Okay. Where the steam pushes the turbines to create the electricity and is then cooled down and pumped back to start the process over. Correct. So in general, it's it's kind of a simple concept. Simpler than I had assumed. Well, but it's, it, it span, or there's comes a lot from, more to it. And it's very similar to like coal power plants or, or other fossil fuel power plants where... It's like water turning a windmill. <laughs> I know, but where the water gets that energy to turn the windmill is a different, is a different thing. I'm right? just saying that general turning of a turbine right by using a control substance like water and heating up the water and then having it cooled and then reheated it is how most of these power plants work right so in this type of reactor the rbmk about five percent of the heat from the fuel is transferred to the graphite blocks which heats them up as well so the graphite is going to be at temperatures around 700 degrees celsius which is so hot, it would have been literally like glowing red hot. Yeah. And this was generally not a problem. Um, but we have to remember hot graphite burns in the presence of air. If, if oxygen reaches it, it's going to be on fire. Yeah, combustion. So um, it's extremely important to have no air inside the reactor core. Again, this will come back to be important later. Hmm. So they sealed it in a, they had like a sealed metal, metal container, which circulated inert gases to suppress oxygen to keep it Totally safe. makes sense. Yeah. yeah. But in other safer reactant, uh, reactors, coolant is used to cool down the moderator material. And the fuel is, it's usually around 70 degrees Celsius, the, the moderator material and fuel in other types of reactors. Oh, so it's very low. It is very different. Yeah. Um, in the RBMK, that cannot be done. So they don't do that. <laughs> um, but there's another huge issue with RM, RBMK reactors that in hindsight seems kind of downright crazy. Um, they had no containment buildings. Okay. As in there's like no shielding if anything did go wrong? Yeah. So Soviet RBMK reactors were seen by by the Soviets as a means of developing nuclear power rapidly and cheaply without the need for, you know, these massive steel pressure vessels and containment buildings that conventional water-cooled reactors required. It, hmm, I can't find any evidence to support that why they thought this. Just They just didn't want to build them because they're expensive, it seems like. So okay. basically... Um, they did have these heavy reinforced concrete isolation spaces that protected the reactor's cooling system in the event of like a pipe breaking, but it didn't protect the reactor itself, apparently because Soviet engineers just never envisioned an accident serious enough to disrupt the core. Okay. So according to experts, a standard containment structure such as those used in Western countries and actually on some of the Soviet's pressurized water reactors would have made a huge difference in this specific accident that happened at Chernobyl. Sure. Um, a proper containment housing might have sustained some penetrations or cracks, um, and it might have allowed some radioactive waste to escape, but it would have trapped most of it. One of the engineers ended up saying, the standard U.S. containment is roughly an equal mixture of steel and concrete. These do not fail catastrophically. This would have made a huge difference. So it seems crazy in retrospect. Yeah. Um, so now to the real meat of the issue. Let's get on to what happened in this disaster. On April 25th, 1986, a crew of engineers that had very little background in reactor physics began to experiment at Chernobyl's nuclear station. Experiment. 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 So ironically, this disaster occurred during testing for the plant's safety. The operators had scheduled this test on the backup power of the reactor in Unit 4, testing how long the turbine could continue to spin if the emergency or there's an emergency reactor shutdown. Normally, in the case of a shutdown and loss of electrical power, the power plant would receive electricity from the electric grid in order to safely handle the situation. Okay. Um, the power plant also had diesel generators that would start up if there was power loss, but it would take 30 seconds to do that. So the test was centered around this idea that if the electrical grid was down and couldn't provide power during the 30 second time for the diesel generators to get going, the turbine could still spin even after the reactor shut down. So they're trying to test this out. 
because it's necessary to always have electricity in the power plant to operate safely to pump the cooling water over the hot fuel. Yeah. So they thought this is a necessary test. And this test could only be done before a routine reactor shut down, which was only done once a year. So they were under a lot of pressure. They felt they had to get this done now. They had to do it. They didn't want to wait till next year. Okay. Yeah. So Unit 4 happened also to be the model plant. It ran the best out of all the RBMK reactors. And it was speculated the operators felt a little overconfident, overconfident, sorry, in their own abilities. Maybe overconfident too. (laughs) Uh, Well, trust me, they were not overconfident. So to begin the test, the reactor's power would be decreased to 50% of its full operating power. At this point, instead of feeding steam to the two regular turbine turbines, they're just going to limit it to one. Theoretically. The four Chernobyl reactors were known to become unstable, though, at low power settings. And the engineer's experiment caused the reactors to become exactly that, unstable. Um, so just after midnight, now we're April 26th, the operator made an error. We don't really know much more than that. We know there was an operational error. Instead of reaching 30% power, the reactor drops to 1% power and almost shuts down. This caused the core to fill with water and xenon gas, which is a neutron absorber. This is called a xenon pit or iodine pit, since xenon is produced by decaying iodine. The xenon pit made it nearly impossible to go back up to the desired 30% power. Because it absorbs neutrons and messes up the whole thing. Stops the chain reaction of more fission happening. Right. So the operator manages to raise the power to 7% by removing control rods. Uh, Okay. He He attempted to control the reactor manually, causing fluctuating temperatures and flow. Um, the reactor is unstable and the core is filled with water. Basically, at this point, there were six to eight control rods in the reactor and the minimum required is about 30. Yeah. So. Because this thing's going to like. There were repeat tests planned after this. They wanted to do this over and over. The operator thinks, oh no, we're not going to be able to do that if the reactor shuts down. So he purposely blocks the automatic shutdown system from going into effect. Manually overrides it. And they have no control cores in there. So if the chain reaction starts to kick off, there's nothing slowing it down. So he then deems the reactor stable enough to continue the testing. Oh, yeah. He then, for some reason, pushes the manual shutdown. Okay. So calculations done after the fact show that this had the opposite effect to what he probably intended. Um, The power started to rapidly increase instead of dropping. Um, as I said, we don't know why he made this decision because unfortunately he was one of the very first casualties being standing, you know, standing right there next to it. Yeah. We don't know what he was thinking. It doesn't make much sense. So one of the keys to understanding what's going to happen is understanding the RBMK's moderator, which is graphite. So I know I described it before, but for this purpose, just think about this reactor as a big square block of graphite with 1,660 holes drilled into it with uranium felled rods. The graphite is supposed to moderate or slow Mm -hmm. the neutrons emitting from the uranium fuel, enabling the neutrons to split other uranium atoms and produce that chain reaction of fission that Everett was talking about that's going to generate the heat. RBMK reactors have the tendency to race out of control when the cooling water is lost or blocked by steam bubbles or voids, as they're called. Right. So normally the cooling water is going to absorb some of the neutrons released by fission. And wherever the bubbles form, so the water is absent, the neutrons are going to start accelerating the chain reaction. Yeah. Which gives an increase to power, which causes more boiling, which causes more of these voids or bubbles which causes increase in power and so on and so on and so on until the liquid's all boiled away, the core melts down. Yeah, because at that point, the chain reaction is just going... Out of control. Out of way too fast. So this differs very radically from most of the nuclear power plants in the West, which use water as the moderator and the coolant. Yeah. So in water-moderated reactors, water is used to control the speed of the neutrons as well as remove the excess heat from the core. And when there's lots of these pockets of steam... The neutrons actually move too fast for a chain reaction to occur and reduce the power generated. 
I don't really get how that works much more than that. This is the limits of my understanding, but that is what I read. Yeah. I thought that a lot of Western ones also had carbon-based control rods as well for my time in chemistry, but I don't recall. I mean, I don't know what the control rods are made of in this case, but um, I think CANDU, C-A-N-D-U, was the name of a lot of the designs that we use in the West. Okay. So, um, anyways, graphite was not the only inherent problem in the RBMK reactor. The control rods of the RBMK reactor had a small and very dangerous fault. So ideally, the control rod would descend and inhibit fission as it extends fully into the reactor. Yeah. This is not the case with the RBMK reactor. Before one of its control rods lowers, it pushes a graphite rider ahead of it. This pushes the water out of the way and makes room for the control rod. Okay. So... Neutrons are absorbed fairly well by water and very well by the control rod, but neutrons can pass directly through graphite. So what we're basically saying is for the time it takes that control rod to fully descend, there is a void at the bottom of the reactor, which is the most active part. So with this design, trying to activate emergency shutdown would briefly worsen problems with the core because you're telling the rods to descend. Yeah, so there's a moment where you're turning it into a bomb instead of a suppression system. Cool, right? Yeah. This is a great design. Yeah, because, I mean, a nu- in all reality, a nuclear re- a nuclear reactor is a nuclear bomb going off slowly. Oh, so I didn't include this, but now that you've mentioned it, I will. Some engineers have likened these RBMK reactors to the atomic pile first invented in um, 1940 for in the Manhattan Project in the United States as just like this basic pile of nuclear weight. Like it was just a very basic nuclear reaction. Yeah. 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 I I mean, I can't stress that enough. Like a a nuclear core is a bomb being controlled. And in this case, and in in this case, if if you, if you have even a moment where your control is lost, like, um, uh, yeah. So I'm going to talk about the explosion and the aftermath. Yeah. As the fission accelerates, the reactor reached 100 times its full power, or intended full power, should I say. Yes. Um, The heat output rose 330 million watts within three seconds. This triggers explosions of steam and hydrogen gas in the core that destroys the reactor, blew the roof off the building, and started a graphite fire in the core. Remember how I said hot graphite should not be exposed to oxygen? You just unsealed it, so... yeah. So the first explosion occurred at 1.23 a.m. on April 26th, and it drove all the remaining cooling water out of the system. Without any coolant, part of the nuclear fuel vaporized because of, you know, it's very, very hot. And this eventually resulted in a second very, very large explosion that destroys the reactor and the building surrounding it, which is where a containment vault would have really, really helped. Um, so of course this shoots the reactor debris and radioactive material throughout the whole power plant and immediate vicinity and into the environment. Yeah. Um, so the initial fires that occurred were brought under control by the end of the night. However, the fuel materials remaining at the meltdown site grew hot and ignited any combustible products anywhere else, caused another explosive fire, and it took 10 days to put this fire out. They had to dump lots of like these helicopters to dump fission and fire control materials like fission control not fission materials um from helicopters which would included 5,000 tons of sand and lead and clay and boron and dolomite Mm -hmm. um so 50 million curies of radioactive material or 3.5 percent of the total in the reactor core was released over the 11 days from april 26th to may 6th um, but this estimate has a margin of error of 50%, Okay. which means it's a terrible estimate, Yeah. but clearly we couldn't get much closer than that. No. So that could mean as little as 25 million curries were released or as much as 75 million. Um, a second crisis began nearly a week after that accident, May 2nd, and lasted for four days. So basically the radiation, um, emitted kind of bottomed out at about 2 million cur- curries on May 1st. And then the next day it climbed again to 8 million. And basically it's just like every material, you know, kind of went through phases of burning. Yeah. So 
The Soviet report attributes that kind of second surge to a delayed escape of radioactive iodine that was cooking out of the core. Um, the report also shows that 18% of all the iodine and 12% of the cesium in the reactor core, which are the two contaminants that did present the greatest threat to human health. Um, so they escaped into the atmosphere before that second fire was extinguished May 6th. So that was a pretty detrimental event. Um, so Soviet officials evacuated um, Pripyat within the first few days, not right away, within the first few days of the accident. Um, and then the rest of the towns surrounding a few days after. So about 115,000 people were evacuated in 1986. And then later they evacuated about 220,000 more people and resettled them other places. Not for any real reason, more just like, oh no, radioactivity, we must move you. But there was no science behind it, should I say? Okay. Um, so as you heard, a lot of, a lot of radiation escaped. Yes. Um, so this accident put about 400 times as much radioactive material into the Earth's atmosphere than the atomic bombs. Well, at least the one dropped in Hiroshima, it said. More than 100 radioactive elements were released into the atmosphere. Um, but the majority of them had a really short half-life and decayed rapidly, and we didn't see any evidence of any effects. Okay. Um, the radioactive cloud did kind of disperse over the entire northern hemisphere and did deposit radioactive material over, like, you know, Soviet Union, other European countries, contaminated the land, the water, and the plant life. Um, of course, Belarus... Russia and Ukraine were the most hard hit, being right by the accident site. But levels exceeding expected background radiation levels were detected as far as 3,000 kilometers from the accident site. Um, so the two, like I said, the two radionuclides that we were really worried about, iodine, um, iodine-131 yeah. and cesium-137, um, were... Like I said, we're the ones that we're really concerned about. I the iodine one thirty one though only has a half life of eight days. Okay, so it happened fairly quickly. And radio cesium that has a half life of thirty years. Yeah. Um, those isotopes were detected in Pacific and Atlantic Oceans, the Americas, and Asia, which kind of shows you kind of global impact. Well, and one of the things to point out is half life. Uh, you know, a, a half life of eight days means that after eight days, half the sample is now inert another eight days later half of that half of that sample and so it's not like it has a half-life of eight days so it's over in eight days it's right. more like it has an effect for theoretically forever uh, but you know the the concentration of which that is viable will significantly decrease over time yes yeah um i just wanted to give one example so of the like how far it spread so a large radioactive cloud drifted over across to the UK and left a radioactive layer of cesium-137 over the country. So 386 British farms are still being monitored to this day for radioactive contamination from the accident. In those areas, sheep have to be monitored with a Geiger counter before they're sold in order to prevent any contaminated meat from being sold. Yep, makes sense. Um, in the former Soviet Union... The biggest concerns were things like the contamination of fresh milk with the iodine-131 and the lack of prompt countermeasures, which I will talk about in a second, led to some high thyroid doses, particularly among children. Um, in the long term, mainly due to the radiocesium, the general population was exposed to radiation externally and internally from consuming contaminated food, um, but part because of the countermeasures that were eventually taken, the radiation doses were actually relatively low to people. Okay. Um, so from the mid, like mid 1986 onwards, um, they, the thinking was that the cesium 137 and 134 and the milk and meat were the most significant sources of any radiation exposure. Cause like I said, the iodine was over fairly quickly. Yeah. The exposure wasn't good when it happened, but that stopped that, you know, was kind of over it fairly quickly. quite quickly. Right. Um, so during the first few years, there was like a really substantial reduction in the levels of radiocesium in most food and like in the most soil and stuff like that. 
Um, but since the mid 90s, the levels have started to fall much more slowly. Yeah. Which makes sense, considering kind of what you're saying about how Half-Life works. Um, so in parts of the contaminated areas, they're, you know, it's still a little bit difficult for subsistent farmers and small, like, dairy operations and stuff. Because the retention of that cesium-137 has been much higher in semi-natural ecosystems than in either the agricultural or like a forest ecosystems. Or no, sorry, than an agricultural ecosystem. Forest ecosystems not great either right now. Um, so the highest levels in like foods is like mushrooms, berries, game, and reindeer. So reindeer eat. Reindeer don't count as game. Moss and apparently not. They're okay. more used for other things. Sure. I don't know. Um, this is just what the UN says. I don't know. So levels of these radionuclides in rivers and lakes directly after the accident fell very rapidly. And they're really very low in drinking water and irrigation water. Um, but I would say that fish and like thing, like drinking water in very closed systems. Yeah. Um, like lake systems. How, is the one thing that's still a persistent issue. Um, seawater and marine fish, haven't it hasn't been an issue at all. Um, yeah, so it sounds scary, right? Yeah. So we're going to talk about what countermeasures were taken and can be taken in situations like this. Perfect. So many reports have criticized the fact that there was about a 36-hour delay in informing local residents what happened. And what effects to their health there might be. Um, this nuclear accident was a test of Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev's openness policy. Since, you know, he wasn't very open. <laughs> no. You would think that the neighborly thing to do would be to inform neighboring countries when something happens like this, right? But um, for the first two and a half days, they didn't say anything. On April 28th, radiation was detected in Sweden, and they were like, hey, what's up, everyone? This thing happened. Um, we're wondering what's going on. We detected some radiation here. And Moscow said, an accident has occurred. And that was their statement. So they didn't really... <laughs> they weren't communicative. A week later, the Soviet press began reporting details of the accident and evacuating people from the other villages around right. Chernobyl. So it took a week to even start talking to these people. Um, in the first few weeks, they didn't have very good management of, you know, animals and milk production. Um, they should have prohibited the consumption of fresh milk. It would have helped significantly to reduce iodine doses in thyroid issues. Um, but they just, they didn't give anyone any advice. The government didn't tell farmers to do anything. They didn't tell their people what to do. Um, so yeah, there's been a lot of criticism about that. Um, Lots of European countries did change their agricultural practices or withdrew their food, especially fresh milk from the supply chain. Uh, for example, Poland supplied iodine prophylaxis promptly to their people, which has definitely reduced their thyroid doses to negligible levels. Great. It's been shown, yeah. Eventually, the Soviets requested help in dealing with the radiation from the experts. And those experts would be from Japan, who unfortunately had a lot of experience dealing with this type of thing after World War II. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, so they helped introduce this extensive set of countermeasures. So during the first few years, they removed a whole lot of food from consumption because of the concern about those radiocesium levels, especially, you know, milks and meats. They treated the pastures. They gave the animals cesium binders, like the livestock yeah. animals cesium binders. Um, anyways, and they monitored the reduction in doses in those animals and stuff. And that all went really well. Um, they tried to reduce people from being exposed in the forest. So they restricted access to forests and harvesting of forest foods like game and berries and mushrooms. Um, they altered hunting practices and gathering firewood. Um, they also, well, other countries did a good job about drinking water. Russia was very slow on that as well. Um, so restrictions on the consumption of freshwater fish from some lakes was very, very effective in places like Scandinavia and Germany. What other changes happened? Well, Russia did agree that changes needed to be made to our BMK reactors. Um, so they made this concrete sarcophagus around that destroyed reactor building. 
Um, they made that in November 1986. And after that, active in emissions of radioactivity into the environment were no longer observed whatsoever. So it was a very Makes effective yeah. um, tool. Today, that sarcophagus, though, is kind of falling apart. And there probably will need to be repairs uh, repairs sure. made to it. And then, you know, there is still at the site um, strontium and radiocesium, in, like, at the accident area. Strontium didn't really go anywhere, though, because it was really heavy. It, it, it is. It doesn't really heavy. disperse very Not well. It was very heavy. It is. So yeah. it, it, it's mostly just at the site. So they've contained that pretty well if people would just not mess with the site. Yeah. I'm sure, it's just sitting like dormant on the ground, basically. Not anymore. Okay. But we'll get there. So after Chernobyl, the USSR tried to correct these original mistakes in the RBMK reactors. They include lengthened and increased the number of control rods, improved the reactor's monitoring and automatic shutdown systems. They boosted the capacity of the cooling pumps. They decreased emergency shutdown time from 18 seconds to 12 seconds, as well as that higher fuel enrichment that yeah. I told you about. Um, they did not, though, enclose the remaining Chernobyl reactors or their other RBMK reactors in steel and concrete containment structures. They did add some more partial containment materials, but no, they still didn't make any containment structure. Well, I'm assuming those other three reactors are still running today. No. Well, they're not. So... I feel like, like, do you just read my notes? The next bullet point. <laughs> uh, <no. laughs> Chernobyl Unit 2 was shut down after a fire in 1991. Unit 1 remained online until 1996, and then it was decommissioned. And uh, they decommissioned Unit 3 in 2000. Okay. So now the whole thing is officially decommissioned. Um, but the Soviets, you know, then the Russians and these other former Soviet states like Lithuania, have operated many RBMK reactors without any serious incidents since the disaster. They did cancel nine RBMK blocks that were under construction after the disaster. Um, but as of December 2021, there were still eight RBMK reactors and three small EGP-6 graphite moderated light water reactors operating in Russia and, like I said, I think Lithuania. Okay. Um, they all have been retreated with a number of safety updates. But yeah, they're still running some of these units. I'm not surprised. Thank, thank goodness nothing has happened. Yeah. Yeah. So the total estimated cost of the accident is around $235 billion, but everyone's quick to acknowledge that's not necessarily accounting for everything. Sure. Um, legally. I was curious what happened legally here. So they did hold a trial pretty much right away, I think 1987. Um, and the Soviet Supreme Court sentenced the former director of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant and two of his deputies to maximum terms of 10 years in a labor camp for gross violations of safety rules. Uh, three other defendants who were lower ranking officials were found guilty of negligence and given like two to five year sentences. So the director, Viktor Bryukhanov, and the chief engineer, Nikolai Fomin, and his deputy, Anatoly Dyatlov, pleaded partly guilty, which I guess is the thing you can do. Hmm. Um, they said they accepted professional responsibility for the accident, but they denied that they had any criminal liability here. Um, the judge said the power station had been poorly managed before the accident, noting that the workers wrote letters and played cards and dominoes while they were on duty. Um, the three defendants that faced lesser, lesser charges pleaded all not guilty. Um, the judge did say that they were very at fault for not fully understanding the experiment they allowed to take place. Yeah. On that night. Yeah. Since the accident... This is what I could find. 27 persons from, persons from the Chernobyl area were expelled from the Communist Party. 67 more were reprimanded for their part in the accident. And then they said that there was going to be three more hearings to examine the responsibility of others involved. And I could find literally no news about that. So I don't know if it was covered up or... Didn't happen. Didn't or, happen yeah. or... I mean, who knows? Um, but yeah, like I said, that all sounded pretty scary. But I was a little surprised to see the end results. So there were seven deaths during the first night of the accident. Two staff members. Okay. Only two, which I'm very surprised about. Yeah. And five firemen. Uh, among the 237 firemen and employees that they examined in the first few days for acute radiation sickness, 134 were diagnosed. 28 mm -hmm. of those died within four months of the accident from various causes of death, but mostly bone marrow failure. Yeah. Which is caused by those heavier um, isotopes being very, very close to the site. Yeah. 
There were about 600 emergency workers at the site until May 26th, and then about 600,000 liquidators worked there to clean up the site until 1990. Estimates are that 2,200 to 4,000 people could eventually die from this incident. But about 50 have died. Okay. So like those are upper estimates, right? Like it's so much smaller than I had assumed. I'm not trying to downplay it, but that was just so much smaller than I had assumed. Um, Almost all of those were among the initial 600 highly exposed rescue workers, most that died within months of the accident. A few died as late as 2004. Um, Among the 600,000 liquidators, there have been very few deaths from any radiation related cause that is. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, some of them may have died for... Other reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. It was a long time ago. Um, So the WHO hasn't really found profound negative health impacts to the rest of the population in surrounding areas, areas, um, minus the thyroid cancer that I'm going to talk about. Sure. Um, They haven't found widespread contamination that would continue to pose a substantial threat to human health within a few very exceptional restricted areas. Um, most emergency workers and people living in the contaminated areas did receive very relatively low whole body radiation doses. Um, so there's been no evidence of decreased fertility. There's been no evidence of congenital malformations and those that have been born since then. Like it's been, thank goodness, it's been not so terrible. So like I said, the primary health effect seen after the disaster was a spike in thyroid cancer among children. So between 4,000 and 5,000 children were diagnosed with thyroid cancer between 1992 and 2002. Of those, um, up to 15, it's hard to tell, have died. The survival rate somewhere near 99% though. Okay. Um, obviously, still really sucks. Not yeah, to yeah. downplay that. But like there isn't clear evidence of increases of other cancers among the most heavily populated or heavily affected populations. Um, you know, there's some cataracts on vascular disease but like it's it's just not a whole ton so to me i was very surprised to learn that one of the largest impacts of the disaster was to mental health and well-being sure up to fifteen thousand soviet women elected to have abortions in the wake of this accident because they just thought it was inevitable that their fetus would be deformed or suffering or something and this is largely due to that lack of communication on the part of their government They were just, they were terrified. And you know what time this was. Um, You know, there's the whole Cold War and the whole nuclear apocalypse being thrown around everywhere. And so people just thought, nuclear, okay, we're done. You know, we're just done. Um, And they all gave up on their, it was, I'm sure it's very, very sad for them. It's terrible. Also though, you know, nuclear bombs and like I said, nuclear fallout were really, really scary and and terrorized and played up by the media. And like the Cold War is a scary time. So Chernobyl has actually been used as a political tool by anti-nuclear activists who, I don't want to say a lot, they lie. They really play it up to try to, they don't want any nuclear power plants. They, you know, they think that's going to be the end of the world, the apocalypse, you know, that kind of thing. So, for example, there's two primary individuals that are like all over saying Chernobyl ruined everything and people should be really scared. Um, Anders Moeller and Timothy Mosso. So they, these people mostly talk about animals, but everything that they say is discredited. Okay. So they continue to publish experimentally unrepeatable, undiscredited papers. They routinely give talks for, quote, Physicians for Social Responsibility, which is an anti-nuclear advocacy group, group devoted to bring about a nuclear-free planet. Um, Moeller was previously caught and reprimanded for publishing papers that were described as scientific misconduct and fraud. Um, they have more recently attempted to publish meta-analyses in which the primary references that they analyze and draw their conclusions from is their own prior discredited papers, along with a discredited book (laughs) called Chernobyl Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment. Okay. Yeah. Um, another one. In 1996, geneticist colleagues Ronald Chester and Robert Baker published a paper on the admittedly thriving vole population within the Chernobyl exclusion zone. In which the central conclusion of their work was essentially that the mutation rate is hundreds and probably thousands of times greater than normal. 
So this claim occurred after they'd done a comparison of the mitochondrial DNA of these Chernobyl voles with that of a control group from outside the region. Um, anyways, that was very alarming. Nature published the paper, which is a very prestigious journal. And then it came out that they had incorrectly classified the species of vole. And therefore, they were comparing the genetics of two entirely different vole species. Which probably looked fairly different. The, like a lot of mutations may have occurred. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, what I'm saying is that Chernobyl is often used as this kind of political tool to scare people. Sure. And it may not be the case. Um, other mental health effects, though... So interestingly, the World Health Organization has identified a condition that they call paralyzing fatalism, which is caused by persistent myths and misperceptions about the threat of radiation. Okay. So the propagation of ignorance and fear by these anti-nuclear activists has caused more harm to the effective population than has the radioactive fallout itself. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So what the WHO has concluded is that residents of these areas assumed a role of chronic dependency and developed an entitlement mentality because of the meltdown. They actually said, quote, the health impact of Chernobyl or the mental health impact of Chernobyl is the largest public health problem created by the accident. Um, they partially attribute it to lack of, you know, this accurate information and they people just have this negative attitude. They believe they're going to have a short life expectancy. They believe they're going to be sick all the time. They're dependent on state assistance. They don't try to work. They don't try to attain goals. They just wait to die. Right. Nothing matters because they're going to die. Yeah. Um, also, the WHO notes that relocation was a deeply traumatic experience for the 350,000 people Russia ended up, well, the Soviets ended up and that's a lot um, of moving out of the area. Right. Um, because like I said earlier, those 116 or thousand or any that were initially moved was probably for a reason. Yeah. But those later relocations, the WHO concluded did nothing to reduce radiation exposure because it wasn't necessary. It was done on hope and not on science or political or, or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. So I was interested in why thyroid cancer was the big thing. Why was this the one thing that happened? And why is it so prevalent in the young children instead of the older populations, right? So yeah. I was curious. So if you don't know, the thyroid gland, um, it looks like a butterfly. It's a li little endocrine gland that's in your throat, basically, yeah. lower front of the neck. Yeah. Um, and its job is to take iodine, mm -hmm. combine it with an amino acid called tyrosine, and then make your thyroid hormones, thyroxine and triiodothronine. Oh, God. Triiodothronine. Um, and then it puts those into your bloodstream, carries them to every tissue in your body. Yeah. So thyroid hormones help the body with metabolism. So to use energy, stay warm, keep your brain, heart, muscles, and organs working, all of that. The thyroid absorbs all your available iodine, iodine from your bloodstream. Yeah. And it can't distinguish between regular iodine and radioactive iodine. It's going to absorb whatever it can. Correct. Um, in babies and children, the thyroid gland is one of the most radiation sensitive parts of the body. You're growing, right? You need, yeah. you need, those are growth hormones. You need to take in the iodine when you're a baby. So most nuclear accidents release radioactive iodine into the atmosphere, which is then absorbed in the body. When the thyroid absorbs too much radioactive iodine, then, you know, you get cancer in a few years. Um, babies and young children are at the highest risk and people like over 40 are pretty much at no risk from that type of thing. Primarily because they're not like growing anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thyroid cancer does seem to be the only cancer which has a rise in incidence after radioactive iodine um, okay. absorption into the body. And so what do medical professionals do about this is they dose people with what's called stable iodine. Stable iodine is potassium iodide. K-I. Yeah. It's the same form of iodine used that we put in table salt yeah. to prevent goiters and stuff. Yeah. Um, so basically, if you take this potassium iodide... You fill up your thyroid with iodine and the thyroid gland is full. It can't absorb any more iodine for the next 24 hours. Right. So if you're really close to this accident, you'd probably continue to take it for a while. But, you know, if you're somewhere that you can just take one dose and then get away from the accident, that's what you would do. Okay. Um, the department, well, many, many countries have this plan. So like Belgium, Finland, France, Ireland, Japan, Sweden, the U.S., Switzerland, all of them have these with a stockpile this potassium iodide. If you live really, really close to a power plant, you'll just have some in your house. They'll just give it to you to have keep in your house just in case. Yeah. And then other than that, if you're like 50 miles away, they have a, like a communal area you can go and get some if you need it. 
Yeah. Um, so that you can take it right away if something ever happens. So that's kind of the plan. That's how doctors handle this. Um, the last thing I wanted to explore was how Chernobyl affected the local wildlife. Perfect. So yes, we know radiation can damage the genetic material of organisms and mutate things and all of that. Um, but one of the most interesting research topics in Chernobyl is trying to detect if some species are actually adapting to live with radiation. So in 2016, a group of researchers noticed that eastern tree frogs at Chernobyl, they just noticed some really, really dark ones. Like they're supposed to be green. Okay. And they noticed some dark ones, even some like pitch black frogs, which cool. is super cool. The pictures are pretty cool. It's just not easy um, being green. <laughs> so they'd rather be black. Yeah. I don't know if that's easier. Well, amongst frogs, maybe. <laughs> so the studies reveal that Chernobyl tree frogs have a much darker coloration than frogs captured in the control areas outside the zone. And they realized the coloration was not related to like current radiation um, or the levels of radiation that they measured in the frogs' bodies. Okay. So they have suggested that the frogs, you know, rapidly kind of evolve in response to the radiation that was released 30 years ago. Um, the dark frogs would have survived the radiation better and reproduced more successfully due to melanin. Melanin is a protective pigment. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like the frogs with the darker coloration w at the time of the accident would have been selected for and they passed that coloration down and then it became prevalent. And now it's not necessarily needed anymore, but there's nothing selecting but, against it. So yeah. it's going to hang around. Yeah. And to be clear, melanin is the same thing that we use in, in our, like that we have in our own skin to protect against radiation and yeah i told UV you you're gonna learn about melanin it's the next thing up perfect well then how about you teach us about that yeah so melanin you probably know which is why i've written here <laughs> it makes your or skin ever might know <laughs> yeah but what you might not know is that melanin can reduce the negative effects of uv radiation and ionizing radiation as perfect. has been shown with fungi which we will get to Okay. Because I couldn't resist. Um, so melanin absorbs and dissipates part of the radiation energy in the form of heat. It can scavenge and neutralize ionized molecules inside the cell, like reactive oxygen. That can neutralize that. Cool. Um, which will make it less likely that you'll suffer cell damage right. in those cells. Yeah? Okay. So I want to talk about fungi. Again, I just could not resist going down this tangent. It was super cool. Of course. So we have learned that fungi seem to interact with ionizing radiation differently from every other type of organism. That's cool. Recent data show us that melanized fungal species. Okay. More melanin. Darker. That's yeah. That's what we're saying here. Um, like those that grow near Chernobyl's reactor, they respond to ionizing radiation with enhanced growth. Sure. You say that, but it's surprising. I, I mean, it is surprising, but I mean, that's cool. So we know and we've been learning that fungi colonize space stations. Um, they adapt really well to extreme environments like Antarctica or the nuclear reactor cooling water ponds. Hmm. Um, turns out that radiation exposure causes what's called an upregulation of a lot of their key growth genes. Um, you know, just more activity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so scientists think that melanins... So there's multiple different types of melanin pigments. Okay. They have functions that are analogous to energy harvesting pigments like chlorophyll. Okay. Okay. So studies in fungi have also shown melanin can harvest energy from electromagnetic radiation. So all types of radiation. Um, so, and that involves melanin's electrical properties and they call that radiosynthesis and it's very fascinating and i do not have time to go into it but as opposed to photosynthesis radiosynthesis yeah cool okay yes, instead of from light it's from radio, radiation like yeah radiation yeah. radio you know just okay. very very cool um very cool things so just like chlorophyll it's a pigment that could absorb energy and then convert it to a storable yeah. yeah so anyways back to the animals how is the environment around Chernobyl doing? So obviously, I'm not I'm not going to say that things were going great from the start. In the immediate aftermath, plants and wildlife clearly didn't do well. Um, so within a few months, up about like six kilometers of the pine forest to the west of the reactor all died, which earned it the nickname Red Forest. Um, large populations of rodents and insects died off. You know, they live in the soil. Yeah. Um, there's a few years after the accident that cows and sheep 
that were being evacuated were noticeably kind of sick and their offspring were kind of sick. Um, there was genetic damage in small animals like fruit flies and mice and a weed called the thale cress was noticed that there was a lot of genetic damage. Um, but now Chernobyl's become the third largest nature reserve in Europe. There is a diverse range of endangered species that live there, including bears, wolves, and European lynxes, which, you know, like I said, were, they were very endangered. Yeah. Um, population densities of, like most animals, like elk, roe deer, red deer, wild boars, they're similar to uncontaminated natural reserves that are in Belarus. Um, wolves were seven times more abundant in the Chernobyl exclusion zone than in the control reserves. Cool. Um they were 19 times more abundant than the uncontaminated reserves in Russia. Okay. Uh, researchers recorded hundreds of plant animal species in the Chernobyl exclusion zone last time they went, um, including more than 60 rare species like the European bison and black storks. In fact, that was the first European bison seen in the area for 300 years. Wow. Yeah. So the pine plantations that were there and died um, now it turned into much more biodiverse primary forests. They're much more yeah, resistant I mean, to climate sense. change, resistant to wildfire, better able to sequester carbon, which is important for the planet. Yeah. Um, in 2015, a scientific paper was published arguing that the chronic radiation around Chernobyl had no long-term negative impact on the abundance of mammals in the area. The conclusion is basically that human occupation had a much bigger impact on the ecosystem than the world's worst nuclear accident did. I believe it, actually. So, yeah, there, there's no doubt that the animals in Chernobyl are radioactive. Boars are especially radioactive because they eat, like, the tubers and grubs and roots yeah, that grow root in the soil. The ground, yeah. Yeah, where the cesium is. Um, high radiation levels have been measured in wolves as well. But so far, there's been no visual effects apparent to researchers. There's never been a, a mutation scene or anything looking abnormal. Um, they would like to study the reproductive system to see if there's any radiation affecting the sperm or the eggs as well as at the Fukushima site. Mm -hmm. um, but like I said, if they're that abundant, something's still working reproductive wise. Sure. Um, so speaking of Fukushima, the same thing was found there. So you've probably heard of this one too, because it was very, very recent. Um, Fukushima Daiki plant melted down after the earthquake and tsunami in yep. March, 2011. About, it was a, about 10% of the amount of radiation um, released as in Chernobyl. And uh, so, but just like at Chernobyl, the researchers were modeling the wild animal's abundance against all the different factors that could be controlling it. Um, and once again, radiation levels appeared to have no impact on where the animals were found or how many were found. Um, like most animals, like the wild boars and Japanese macaques and martens were more abundant in the contaminated zones where humans were excluded than the non-contaminated zones. In fact, they're actually having to go in and cull the wild boar populations there because they're getting out of control and they're destroying all the human buildings that they want to one day go back to. Yeah. Um, okay, fine. Yeah, so the bottom line is that when humans leave an area, wildlife will surge. Well. Yeah. 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 That part yeah. I have zero surprise around. <laughs> we are worse than Chernobyl. Yeah. Good for people. Yeah. So I'm going to end on a, a small, unfortunate note. Oh, um, fine. On, uh, so on February 24th of our current year, 2022, Russian army troops entered the Chernobyl exclusion zone from bordering Belarus. And by the end of the day, they had taken control of the nuclear power plant and trapped more than 100 employees there. They drove armored vehicles through the Red Forest, which mm. is probably the most, one of the most, if not the most contaminated parts of the exclusion zone, kicking up clouds of radioactive dust. Um, yeah, the site did overheat. The facility lost power for more than a day. March 31st was reported that the Russian troops had left the area. Um, but scientists haven't been able to return since. And we don't know what is going to happen there now or what's going on. Because, like we kind of said, the heaviest elements that hadn't really gone anywhere weren't going anywhere until someone drove a tank over them and stirred it all up into the air. So, yeah. I mean, don't know and, what the wind patterns know. were during those times. Or, or it's stuck to it. They're transporting it, tracking it over large yeah. segments of land. Yeah. So there are some possible repercussions, as well as all the studies that were being done there have been completely interrupted and stuff. Sure. 
Um, and we don't know the state of that sarcophagus at this point that was deteriorating. So huh. um, not the greatest news, but all in all, I think um, it made me feel less um, apoc- like, you know, worried about the global apocalypse of nuclear war. Not that I want there to be nuclear war. I still, it would be awful. Yeah. But, you know, maybe it wouldn't be an apocalypse. And also... I'm happy for the wildlife and the area around there that it wasn't as bad as I'd always pictured in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the media uh, definitely plays it up significantly. Yeah, whether they know they're doing it or not, though, like, do they know the truth? You know what I mean? At this point, well, they probably I feel like don't. it's been lost in the... It's just the cultural uh, understanding at this point. Right, right. Yeah, so I had a very interesting time learning about that. And our next episode... Uh, will happen will happen like i i really don't know like always i don't really know what i want to do i kind of think i want to talk about lobsters but Hmm. maybe japanese mythology or maybe something about the you know real trojan war i just 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 a lot of things on my mind but i can guarantee you that i will find it interesting of course you do too So once again, thank you very much for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. 